Alright, you guys ready to go? Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different topic each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. And this week, we are proud to have on the program our dear friend and comrade, Matthew Kowalski. Yakshamash. And in addition to having a great taste in beer and movies and a general lust for life, Matthew is an accomplished historian whose focus in the last decades have ranged all the way from medieval peasant uprisings to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Currently, he works at Temple University as a professor of modern European history, where he looks at the last hundred years of European development through a lens of sporting and material culture. Just last semester, he led a program called History Through Horror that brought together both film nerds and history heads alike, and I fucking wish I had a seat in that class. I bet it was a great time. It was. It was. (laughs) I'm very, very jealous. And so, well, this week on, on Death Nerve, we are, we're doing kind of a historical horror double feature where we'll be discussing two incredible Polish films. First up will be Andrzej Zhuwalski's 1972 film, The Devil, followed by Marek Pesarek's 1983 folk horror classic, Wilczyka, the She-Wolf. And the reason why we're doing both of these films is because they each take place during a period in Polish and Lithuanian history known as the Partitions. And while I loved watching both of them uh, without any real knowledge or context of the history, because they're, they're great movies, I knew, especially with The Devil, that I need to watch it again after talking to both of you guys. And, and kind of like knowing why it was because it didn't seem transgressive to me on the surface and i guess before we get into the movies can you explain what were the partitions okay so and in this i'm being very much an historian right now we have to dovetail our way back a little bit during the high medieval period you had this gigantic and when i said gigantic i mean maybe charles if you want to post like a map uh, to go with this episode. There was this giant country in Central and Eastern Europe called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which included all of present-day Poland, all of Lithuania, parts of uh, Latvia, almost all of Ukraine, all of Belarus. It was huge. Huge, huge, multi-ethnic, very complex country. And very chill. <laughs> yes. What do you mean chill? Well, comparatively chill. But then something happens. You get the 14th century crisis, you get the Black Death, and something happens in Central and Eastern Europe called the Second Serfdom. Uh, Serfdom, which was starting to be on its way out in the West, comes back to life like a zombie in Central and Eastern Europe, and it's given a Barry Bonds-level dose of steroids. (laughs) Okay. And so what you have happen is... This once very prosperous, very powerful sort of regional superpower starts to get increasingly dysfunctional as the power of the central state and the king 
withers away and the Polish nobility become almost a law unto themselves. Yeah, they went buck wild pretty much like in France. <laughs> yeah. They okay. didn't want anyone to be the boss of them. Late Poland, late, you know, Polish Lithuania, if anything, it's a advertisement for why the rich need to pay their taxes. Because you had this system devolve where the nobility not only didn't pay taxes, didn't, you know, uh, give their serfs or anything to defend the Polish state, which is why the Polish state had to rely upon things like Cossacks in Ukraine uh, as pay-to-play kind of soldiers. But it got to a point where they elected the king. And they wouldn't just elect any old king. They would elect, like, the loser of losers. You know, (laughs) some noble's drinking buddy who would just sit on the throne and pass laws which defended and, you know, strengthened the Polish nobility at the expense of the Polish state. So it was kind of farcical. It was... uh, It was beyond farcical. And this is my misreading, or this is my take on what I think then happens is the greater surrounding powers of, like, say, like, Prussia and all of, like, you know, Austria, Austria, that they kind of, they smell blood in the water. They see that this very, this once, like, thriving multicultural area is now right for the taking. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Poland's neighbors, and the same thing happens, by the way, to Hungary. This is how Hungary winds up in the Habsburg Empire. Or Hungary. They are strengthening and they're centralizing and they have absolute monarchies by the time you get to the 18th century. Well, and didn't the Constitution have... So my understanding is that what like finally kicked it off and what made the wars of the part... The partition wars sort of okay in a more global European sense is that Poland and Lithuania put together... Europe's first somewhat democratic constitution. And that's what I meant when I said it was chill. Is okay. that they were it's, like, okay, let's It's that's a yes and no. In some ways it is remarkably chill as compared to let's say, you know, Russia, the Russia <laughs> or the Prussia of Friedrich the Great. On the other hand though, and this is a big thing in the Polish diaspora when this may be, this isn't a newsflash for you guys, but for, uh, for many of the listeners, but newsflash, when my people came to this country, we weren't freaking white. So we had to like concoct oh, yeah. weird ways to prove our whiteness. One of it being, haha, Poland was like the first democracy. So that's propaganda too. <laughs> it, yeah. And the truth of the matter is it was really more of an oligarchy. Yeah, It was a constitution that guaranteed the rights of the landed nobility at the expense of... Well, that's like our constitution. I didn't say it wasn't totally unlike <laughs> our constitution, but... But what I'm curious, I guess, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself mm-hmm. here, but this, you know, historical context of the partitions and these other, you know, great powers kind of like sweeping in and dividing up Poland and kind of like overseeing it and the nobility kind of abdicating a lot of their power, but in order to maintain their lifestyle. That's exactly it. Totally. Uh, At the end of the day, the Polish nobility, because they were promised by the Prussians, the Austrians, and the Russians, they could keep their feudal privileges, they could keep their big estates, they could keep their goddamn serfs. They were okay with this. Oh, yeah. They were okay with this. Okay, so... 
that's a lot of the context of the devil is people sort of acquiescing to these superpowers coming in and just trampling all over everything. But it's okay because you can maintain your wealthy lifestyle and who cares what happens mm-hmm. to the rest of the country. So, and this is why, I mean, when I was watching the devil, uh, I didn't quite grasp how it was so transgressive or why it was considered so transgressive because to me it was just a a film about a historical time that doesn't really have much to say about the current moment but i guess like what was the the moment so the devil came out in 72 yeah yeah what was going on was supposed to come out in 72 (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what was going on in poland at that time Well, wait, I think the other part of the puzzle that's really important to understand is because Poland was part of the Soviet communist project at this point, the thing that I think needs some explanation if you don't have any background that makes sense of why the devil was so shocking is because starting in the late 40s and especially into the 50s, it was required in most Soviet filmmaking states that you followed the edicts of socialist realism, where you have this rosy depiction of communist workers who have some struggle that they overcome by following communist values. And a lot of filmmakers were sort of able to push the needle after Stalin died. And one of the ways that they found to do this was making films set during historical periods because the censors would often not make the connection and sort of look the other way. And that's what Jawowski did with his first film, Third Part of the Night, which is set during World War II, similarly scandalized everyone. But this one, it's all about the dialogue where he basically says you're all sheep and you're not protesting and you're just giving in to being occupied by this foreign power, which is really the Soviet Union. Yeah, there's some sort of specifically Polish context here. Social, actually existing socialism comes to Poland, not like, let's say, Yugoslavia or Albania, where homegrown communists liberated themselves from fascism, it came to Poland via the Red Army. It was as much imposed as it was a domestic phenomenon. So here you already have a country in Poland whose very identity as a modern nation is literally grounded in everyone around us hates us. And we are fighting we just are to be fighting Polish. just to be Polish. We are, we'll talk about Catholicism a lot. Oh, and I, I don't think we said this, but the partitions, which started in the 1790s, lasted until 1918 when World War One ended. So Poland was not an independent nation this whole time. Poland did not exist, which is why the first words of the Polish national anthem are literally, Poland is still living. Poland is not yet perished, which shows you a lot about Polish national identity and how yeah. fractured that is. So when socialism, the socialist project comes to Poland, it's a foreign import. The first decade or so is full-on Stalinism. 
Yeah, it was a bad time. Lots of show trials, lots of Jews getting killed. Yes. Yeah, pogrom. Anti-Semitism, which was an issue in interwar Poland, is kind of grafted and made normalized, which is screwed up if you think, you know, if you're a socialist, you're a Marxist. This is the yeah, last it, thing it, you it seems antithetical doing. to it. Well, but the new regime was like, we're on thin ice, we need legitimacy. Poles don't like Jews, therefore, if we make anti-Semitism normal, Poles will like us. Yeah. Well, and I think some of it also, especially where the show trials were concerned, it was all about not just trying to kill any Jews, but specifically trying to kill the intellectual class, the well-educated people who rose to positions of power in the Communist Party they were an obvious target. And the same thing happens in the Soviet Union and in the in 50s. all of the Soviet yeah. satellites. Because they, they didn't go through enough during World War II. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. In 1956, something happens, though. Nikita Khrushchev gives a little secret speech that ain't so secret. And in the case of Poland, a party uh, member that had been sidelined, but he hadn't been, like, Death purged, if I can use that. that that's uh, the best Vladislav way to describe it. Glomika uh, becomes the party chairman. And Glomika is kind of important here because from about 56 to about 1967, Glomika institutes what is genuinely actually one of the more liberal yeah. regimes behind the Iron Curtain. It's one of the reasons Andrei Vajda is able to make some of the films he does in the 1950s. That sure. Be- so- I, I did very, I did very little research for this episode, oh. but the the research that I did do, Golmika was kind of presented as the guy who was like censoring all these movies. Well, well but see, later. this is this is it. The first decade or so of Golmika is kind of a golden age. Oh yeah, uh, he he's chill, more permissive. Very chill. We'll talk about the soundtrack of this movie. Like, oh, Poland yeah. had fucking prog rock, yo. Yeah. But then 1968 happens, and it's the global yeah. 1968. And Gomika, even though he's a liberal, he's not a Stalinist. He's still an old party hack, and is just but tired of when met of with riots. these, you know, young student protesters. He gets scared, and the people around him, particularly the interior minister, use this and take it as an advantage. And the last couple years of the Golmika regime, it's not a full-on return to Stalinism, but it is very similar to what you see, let's say, in Czechoslovakia after the Prague Spring. Okay. Yeah, where bad for artists, bad for intellectuals, bad for Jews. So yeah, people leave. Particularly Jews, because a year before you had the Six-Day War when Poland and the Socialist Bloc's Arab allies get smoked by Israel... So what starts as a Arab solidarity anti-Zionist campaign devolves very quickly into a sort of unofficial, official anti-Semitic campaign. Yeah, it's so sad. But so... So Gomika started off as a very kind of like liberal type of guy. It's, It's sort of parallel to what's going on in Czechoslovakia which is in the 60s, you get the Czech New Wave where they're making all these more progressive films. But by the end of the 60s, because these student worker riots are just popping off, the government's cracked down and everything changes. That makes perfect sense because after, you know, yes, 68, that shit happened everywhere. Yes. And it was 
one of the last huge revolutionary times for the left that seems like there was solidarity between not just like factory workers, but like students. And it was a really beautiful uh, moment that seemed very global. Well, and in the context of the second world, almost like the first world, but in particular, you have these young Poles, these young Czechs, these young Soviets who they've been taught to think ideologically. And they've read Marx, they've read Lenin, but they also see the reality of the state. And a lot of their demands, the, the, these... Their demands are for communism. Yes, their demands they, they are want for actual socialism. what it is that, they are, that they're studying. And, exactly. And, and that is such a threat to power. And when power uses socialism and communism as a means to attain their power, but without actually you know, believing in it, just knowing the words and knowing the rhetoric and knowing how to use it to advance their own personal Or if the games. state, dare I say, because I would argue that at least maybe until the 60s, a lot of the people in charge of these places did believe. But yeah. when yeah. you have made yourself the sole arbiter Precisely. of what belief has to be, effectively you become Stalin Pope. Yes. Yep. That is when news. something, the grassroots become problematic. So I guess, I mean, the main question that I have that we're going to get to that I kind of keep mentioning is, is how is the devil transgressive? But before we answer that... So many answers. <laughs> before we get to that, I mean, this is probably even the harder question to answer. What is the devil about? Oh, like, I don't... I, I mean, like, not necessarily... Like, I don't want to beat by beat what happens in the movie, but, like, generally an overview. Let's say, okay, let's say you work for uh, some niche Blu-ray company and you're putting the devil out and you got to write a little blurb on the back of the of the Blu-ray. What, what, what is it? I can actually just read you the description from my book chapter on the devil. What book? <laughs> uh, well, so I wrote a series of essays on Zhuavsky's films. I think I'm the first person to have ever written about all of them. And I'm turning it into a book, but... Sam, if I could just come in real quick... At least in the English language, you were definitely the only person. I actually, I don't know if it's all been covered in Polish because no, so many of his films were French. Yeah, and even the Polish scholarship is sort of fractured. But who wants to read? No one's seen this guy's movies. There's no market for it. There's well, no market. What are you doing a book? I'm just kidding. I know that's what people have said to you over the years. Yes. But uh, please. Okay, so here, here is my description and... This essay was one of the hardest I've ever written because of all those questions you just raised. There's so much going on here. But so it's set during the invasion of the Prussian army in 1793. Total war has broken out across the Polish countryside. A mysterious man in black rescues Jakob from a squalid prison overseen by nuns. Jakob is an alleged organizer of a political conspiracy and the man in black frees him in exchange for the eventual promise of a list of Jakob's collaborators. The man in black also selects a young nun to accompany Jakob on a chaotic journey home, which is disrupted by political turmoil and the aftermath of a violent battle. And that battle, by the way, 
is meant to be a direct reflection of the Donsk shipyard riots that happened in 1971. Okay. So that's one answer to why is it so controversial. Yeah. And but I think the reason why uh, describing the plot of this movie is so hard to do is because it's, I mean, to me, it's like, describe, <laughs> describe the plot of uh, fucking David Lynch's Lost Highway or describe <laughs> the plot of Yadorowski's Holy Mountain. It's... Honestly, He's trying to turn shit into gold. That's the plot. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's just, it's, it feels like these are movies that are like, they're, they're odysseys that are experimental and are, are surreal. Yeah. They have to be, it's like, they're all films that are very sensory and you have to experience them emotionally. Yes. And it's so it's like the opposite of Hollywood cinema where things are told to you through exposition and through a series of tropes that are familiar to you. But the devil is just like the devil took me a while to accept. I, I did not I did not catch the vibe early on for maybe the first like 40 minutes almost. And it was just kind of frustrating me. And then I don't know when the switch got flipped. I saw it or, happen. But like something happened where I realized who everyone was and who this man in black was. And like, I'm watching the movie and like for a while I'm like, yo, when's the devil going to show up? <laughs> you know, like when, when are we going to get this devil guy? And I'm like, Oh, is it the main character? Is it Jacob? Is he the devil? Okay. He must be the devil. And then I realized it's this fucking guy and it's not a devil. Like I thought, like I thought it was going to be like, you know, Satan, the devil, but it's more like, you know, in, in like Bugs Bunny cartoons and shit, when they have the, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, and he's like, yeah, you know, eat Tweety, or I don't know what the fuck, I haven't seen a Bugs Bunny cartoon in a while, but, <laughs> but the classic Pretty image much, of yes. an angel and a devil on your shoulder, and he's just kind of whispering things to him and telling him what to do. And literally handing him a straight razor so that he can murder people. <laughs> yes, yeah. but but what's so weird is that it didn't register to me that this guy was like an evil force for a while. Because he was telling him, no. I'm setting you free. I'm setting you free. And the first thing he tells Jakob is, no, don't go to Warsaw and fight in, you know, the resistance and, you know, re-band your, your old comrades. Go home. Go see your family. Because I got some things to show you, And kid. in my mind, I'm like, yeah, go home and see your family. It's a great idea. But then, like, when you realize it's like, no, no, it's not. You're turning your back on what matters in order to go into this, like hellhole this fucking orgy of <laughs> excess yeah. and this like and to and to face your defeat head on and the surreality of the film is that surreal feeling i don't know if you ever like uh got your dick stopped on so hard and were defeated so hard in a political way that things feel unreal and that's what the movie feels like, that you are now just like, living in yeah, defeat like it's, and it doesn't make sense. It fractured his whole reality. I really love how you deliberately threw the term total war, which I have in my notes as well. Total war. Uh, total war, this war without limits, this war against civilians. It, 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 it is a byproduct of the French Revolution. This is modern warfare come to Poland. And this is what modern warfare does to communities yeah. yeah it fractures everything and so the film it's addressing the first partition but this is not going to be poland's first rodeo with total war 
This can be World no. War One. This could be World War Two. This could be any of the 19th century rebellions, which we'll oh, also yeah. talk about as well. I think there are definitely some nods. So even though, as I mentioned, his first film, Third Part of the Night, is set during World War Two, and addresses it sort of directly, this, I think, has nods to that as well, because I think what most Americans learn about World War Two doesn't really reflect the depths of the depravity happening yeah. in Poland the and Belarus. World, the World War II that is taught to Americans, which hopefully my World War II seminar redresses, is the war on the East is not your grandfather's World War II. Unless, of course, you're Polish or Ukrainian like myself, in which case, yes. yeah, unfortunately it was. Uh-huh. But, like, when I was writing my World War II book... Once I got to reading about what happened in Belarus and the Warsaw Uprising, I got such bad nightmares that I had to stop doing research for a while. So it's it's so awful. This, I kept thinking while I was watching this movie, the the Devil, that it reminded me of like if if Yadorowski made Come and See almost Hmm. because it's this kind of uh, Odyssey trip that you're taking that into more and more horrors into more and more horrors but like they come with this sort of logic that offends and shocks but doesn't it makes sense you know or like it kind Mm -hmm. of like the depravity makes sense and 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 when in come and see there's that scene where they're like uh it's been a while since i've seen it but like the kid with the haunted eyes that's all fucked up he's uh he's like with a horse and and some like lady he's traveling with and they get stuck in this like bog it's it's, it's their, like it's their never-ending story moment yeah, with artax yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 artax you're sinking come on but like it's this like <laughs> fucked up scene i'm actually gonna be teaching come and see this semester please, please give that shout out <laughs> and and this this movie kind of felt like that scene which is like the most artistic and experimental scene in come and see where they're just like suddenly stuck in quicksand walking through it and just like being haunted. And this movie, I feel like it takes place in that quicksand, except the quicksand is just snow and you can walk all over. Well, it. And even before the, even before winter comes and you know, there's been a sort of debate whether this film falls under that category of folk horror. I don't want to throw I think myself. It does. I think it does. Yeah. But I know that what is folk horror is the new, is it Jalo? Uh, oh like, my God. Uh, like, what the fuck? Uh, but if we, if we think about folk horror as two essential elements, one, the countryside is a character. Yes. Well, yeah. Which it is this here film, for this sure. Film, and very much so. I mean, it's the dirt is a character. Yeah, the in sea this. of mud that is Poland in the spring or the fall. Oh is yeah, very much. Also, a there's that scene that is the one that sticks in my mind the most, where it's it's like within the first twenty minutes when he's going through the countryside and he wanders into this landscape mm. that's just twisted, like jacked up trees and mud and dead bodies of soldiers. And it's just like, it feels like a fantasy. And very yeah. shortly. Or a nightmare. And very shortly after or just before that scene, he comes across this like theater troupe 
in the woods. Hell yeah. yeah. It's like circus. They're like doing like tightrope walking and acrobats and like, and it'd be the kind of scene where if it was in a Fellini film, it'd be like, oh, this is beautiful. But in this movie, it's like, yo, this is fucking sinister it, as hell. And they're all it, trying to take his clothes off. Yeah. Yeah. It's rapey. It's grotesque. So rapey. Very, there's and a lot of bisexual rapiness. There's, there's a theme that goes through this film because the devil, well, let's cut right to the chase. The devil is treason. Yes. The devil is being anti-Polish. The devil is, you know, being one with the collaborators. And just sort of giving in, like, there's this quote that I wrote down, which I'm pretty sure these two quotes would have been enough to get the movie banned. At one point, the devil tells Jakob, so he takes Jakob to this, this manor house where Jakob sees the woman who was once his fiance, Malgorzata Brownick, who was Zhivovsky's wife at the time, she's pregnant. She's in the process of getting married to the guy who used to be his best friend. All these people were and his collaborators. Yes. Yeah. And they're all doing this ridiculous dance. And he says that they're doing a fashionable patriotic dance on the grave of our country's freedom. Yeah. <laughs> that, that I have banned. That down. Yep. And that, wait, and the other one, at one point, I think it's the nun, one of her few lines. She says the worst depravity is passive acceptance or passive acquiescence. No, my fucking God. (laughs) This this movie is just loaded with philosophy. Every line of dialogue. I think is very important. Yes. Because what you had after 1968, all of these countries, it wasn't a return to full on Stalinism because the authorities were like, we cannot arrest everybody. There's just not enough manpower. Exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah, literally, we it's almost good. But, so, uh, the way that they went about it, and it's it's called in the scholarship, and this is sort of the period of a lot of my interest, it's called late socialism. And if you've mm-hmm. ever read Vaclav Havel's The Power of the Powerless, you know what this is. It's we will buy the population off because ideology doesn't matter anymore. Nope. We will give you color TV, consumer goods, it's still socialism, so we have a bang-in welfare state. Here's the thing. All you have to do is act. Put out the red banner on May Day yes, and precisely. Revolution Day. Pretend. Yeah. But don't actually but have don't real actually Marxist believe. values. Yes. Do not believe. And that there's a line there early when he runs into the theater troupe, and they're like, we are perfect. We're doing well in this chaos. And it's like, well, why are you doing well? Because we're because performers. Because performers. And at the end... are wearing masks. Yes. And at the end, they ask him... Wow. There's that horrifying line at the end where... He gets sort of, so he learns throughout the course of these horrifying events that his estranged mother, who he hasn't seen most of his life, is actually living nearby and she runs a brothel that caters to this sort of upper class aristocracy. Yeah. And and they, they bring him in and they basically tell him, as long as you perform and play along, you can even kill people and will think it's entertaining. Yeah. And he's just like, what the fuck? Yeah. And and what you just said, Matt, reminds me of uh, the idea of if, if you just act, if you perform communism instead of actually doing it, or, or, or if you make these like gestures towards it and you, you say this is what communism is, whatever it is that you're doing, that uh, I've read and, and heard a lot of people say is what 
actually the collapse of the Soviet Union Absolutely. was. Absolutely. And this is what makes someone like a Gorbachev such a tragic figure. Yeah. He got the memo late and was like, we need to reform all of this. If you defend socialism and believe, we can get through the rough times. Yeah. By 1985, 1986, no one believed anymore. And they were just yes. like, oh, it was, why it was, would they? Why are, yeah, it like, was a zombie that was just, you know, performing this, mm-hmm. like, visage of its prior life. You know, exactly. going to the mall in Dawn of the Dead. It's like, you know, back to my fucking Looney Tunes. It was the, the Roadrunner had, uh, you know gone off this way and the coyote was chasing him and the coyote's off the cliff but it's still moving and uh, the coyote does not fall down until it looks down and it sees like oh shit i'm not standing on anything and then it falls to run so this whole system was off the cliff and moving and it was the moment that everyone collectively looked down and then again looked at each other and said oh yeah you see the ground too that it collapsed meep meep there's something very cynical about that collapse, too, because if anything, unfortunately, the, the socialist project did not breed more moral human beings. It bred no. a whole generation towards the end of cynics, yeah. where nothing was real, nothing made sense. Screw it. Which seems like a global problem. Yeah, it's funny how I think that we are also living in that moment yes. right now, yes. but under a very different system where it's oh, like, sure. like during the pandemic no and things, here. it's like, mm-hmm. oh, listen, this pandemic will be over as soon as you just start engaging in capital just again, take a as mask soon as you off. start buying Go stuff again store. and going like... Go to fucking work. What are you doing working from home? Not even like you need to go to work. You need to go to a restaurant and you need to go out there and spend. And, and that was us engaging in like, oh, we need to reengage with our system in order for it to like not collapse. And it goes to show like, oh, it can just collapse like yeah. that easily. And it's like a flan in a cupboard. As, yeah. as Eddie Izzard would say. <laughs> There's an excellent book which i'd highly recommend to you guys and the listeners uh sociologist actually alexi yurchek wrote a book god that's almost two decades ago now called uh everything was until it was no more where he interviewed members of the last soviet generation oh wow and what you describe is exactly it everything was stable but everything was nonsense yes. until all of a sudden the nonsense got pulled off and then it just it, it, it fell apart. I, I do think that uh, in the U.S., we are much better at putting the mask back on and being, oh, thank you. Like, you know, we take the mask off and we see the hideous beast underneath of it. And we're like, ah, we like the mask. Let's go back to that and let's pretend we didn't see yeah, we'll, shit. Yeah, we'll what? take, we'll take uh, down some racist statues and, and then we just go. want to forget yes, everything It's again. about aesthetics. What here. I will say, which I guess is sort of, but I guess if you're a Marxist, you are a apocalyptic optimist anyway. You gotta be. Yes. You gotta be. The pandemic has... It's getting harder to do that. Yeah. That's all I'm gonna say. And it's, and it's taking more effort. Yeah. People are exhausted. Yeah. Because I think that, too, you have to also keep in mind how, how dramatic the events of the late 80s were. Yeah. We haven't hit that quite yet. Well, we'll see. But Wait, we'll see. okay. We're going to pull things back. I want to get back <laughs> on track by talking about one more thing that's related to the issue of performance. So two of the references that I think would have been explicit to Polish audiences at the time that are part of why this film made the censors so insane, it references Hamlet 
And you could oh, even yeah. interpret part of the film as a remake of Hamlet or an adaptation of Hamlet in a certain sense. And the band of performers that we were talking about, they act out scenes from Hamlet that have oh yeah, a lot of resonance and you can find entire, as you know, entire books about this, but Hamlet was seen, especially in the Soviet Union and Soviet satellite states, as kind of forbidden material because it was explicitly about this guy who becomes crazy by trying to overturn a corrupt power system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so by making it have so many references to Hamlet right off the bat, he's like, okay, we're overthrowing the people in power. Okay. So I, I'm curious. I kind of see why this movie's transgressive. It was not really about the partitions, even though it kind of was, it was about the current moment in Poland in the early seventies. What did Zhuofsky go through after making the movie? There's one more thing I want to talk. I feel like that's sort of a moving on conversation. Yeah. You know, what do you got? What do you got? Well, so we haven't talked about Jadi at all. And this goes back to your question about, is it full car or isn't it? And I think to the point that Charles made, if you watch it without any context, it might not feel like full car, but it's a, it has all of these pretty explicit references to Jadi, which is this, famous epic poem by Adam Mickiewicz, who is the most famous literary and the genius literary of godfather of romantic Polish nationalism. And the weird thing about this that I think maybe doesn't, you might know the answer to this, but I feel like it doesn't apply to any other country. Usually when we talk about nationalism, we mean right-wing nationalism. In the case of Polish nationalism, at least in the 18 and 1900s, it was almost explicitly connected to this sort of left-wing rebelliousness that is baked in because they're not supposed to celebrate being Polish. Like, it's rebellious. It can go both ways. In this context, it definitely is the more progressive sort of stream of Polish nationalism. Because of how the partitions went down, Resistance to the partition and the Polish and the foreign occupation was going to be centered on okay, Poland screwed up because of feudalism. So, therefore, this new Poland, rather than like German nationalism that's trying to capture something that was supposedly lost, oh, yeah, never really existed. Yeah, (laughs) Polish nationalism looked to the French Revolution and said, modern countries look like France does. They don't have kings. They don't have nobles. They have, you know, uh, modern institutions. You know, the peasants aren't serfs. They got rid of serfdom. So yeah, you're at that's that's a spot on. Actually, weirdly enough, but it does does show this kind of it can go both ways because I think we'll talk a little bit about this with the second film too. Yeah. Polish nationalism, I always equate it to, and Sam, you definitely would know this, the closest variant in Europe is Irish nationalism. Oh, yes. Where, on the one hand, you have a very progressive strain because it's a nationalism that's coming out of imperialism. That's saying, hey, don't push us off these cliffs and starve us to death, please. (laughs) And we have the same strain in the U.S. with black nationalism. Yes, but uh, the Irish, I think the Irish analogy is really important because both countries, too, their national identity is also wrapped up in Catholicism. 
Oh, yes. And that's where when you said, oh, Polish nationalism is more progressive, I was like, eh. Well, I mean, I mean, specifically in the context of like the work that the Polish romantic authors like Mikiewicz were doing, which also, if you read Jadi, and there's a, a good translation out there, it's full of this like people who are imprisoned for mm-hmm. trying to commit treason and overthrow a king. And there are, there's this guy who wanders the countryside who's a lot like Jakob, who's, it's like, you don't know if he's a demon or if he's undead. And it, Jadi is a holiday that's sort of like Halloween. And so it has all this gothic stuff in it. And so I think if you look at it through that lens, it definitely feels like folk horror. But also, too, what you said in terms of folk horror and the source material back to Roman Catholicism. Oh, yeah. There is no more of a pagan version of Roman Catholicism than than Polish Polish Catholicism. Catholicism. And so in that sense, too, I think the folk horror vibes are strong here. Yeah, and and the closing of the film just kind of cements the fact like oh, i didn't yeah. i oh, didn't yeah. think oh, this yeah. was full car i can tell there was full car vibes with like the dirt being a main character in the movie but that closing bit where the fucking devil just like turns into a dog like after he gets iced oh, it's yeah. just it's it seals the deal of like this is full car but just you know not your like classic blood on satan's claw style full car well and here going back to the sort but of But it kind of is because Blood on Satan's Claw is all about teen rebellion against a conservative yes. society. Yeah. But here's where there's this weird again, and you you can't underestimate the importance of Catholicism. The devil is vanquished. The devil is also revealed to be a bureaucrat, basically. Yeah, well, the devil as a, a bureaucrat in the service of a foreign power. Yes. So nineteen seventies Polish Treason. workers party. Yeah. Also, uh, the thing that I meant to say earlier, Jadi, there are theatrical performances of it. And one of the theatrical performances kicked off the 1968 riots in Poland. Okay. And so just adapting Hamlet and Jadi alone would have enraged the sense. So I, I imagine at the, the time that this movie came out, it was like the most dangerous time for this movie to come out. Yeah, it's, a, it's yeah. kind of a perfect storm there. and Especially coming on the heels of Third Part of the Night, which he got the green light to make it because it's allegedly an adaptation of his father's time in the Polish underground. And his father was a diplomat, an author, co-wrote his first film. Like a World War II hero. Was considered a hero. Yeah. But he really pissed people off with the first film because everything, it's very sort of noirish. And the Polish, much like in The Devil, the, the Polish resistance fighters aren't shown to be heroic in the film at all. They're basically like traumatized, surviving, barely surviving. And... That was a no, like no good. You had to show them in that sort of socialist, realist, black and white. These are the good guys. And in Jarovsky's films, there are no good guys. So back to my my question earlier, what did he go through after this movie? Like, because you said that it 
came out in 72, but it wasn't made in 72? No, was, no. Well, no, it never came out. It oh, never, ne- it oh, never okay. came out. That's that's what I meant. So it, it was filmed, I believe, in 1971. Yes, end of 71. End of 71. You have the first major strikes and protests in Gdansk, which is the precursor to a decade later uh, solidarity, the same London shipyards. Yeah, those shipyards, I don't know what was going on there, but it seems like a lot. <laughs> I have been there, so really? yes, it is. If you ever go to Poland, go to Gdansk. I've only driven through the countryside. Full car. Yeah, you've seen the dirt. It totally felt like full car <laughs> too. But so it's it's like you said, Charles. It's a bad time and place. The censors weren't happy with this first film, but no. they let it. They let it go. Then this thing shows up. You have all these literary references. You have a film that's explicitly linking. There's incest. Satan. Yeah, there's Satan incest, and which violence. The socialist cultural nexus was rather conservative when it came to a lot of things like that. Yeah. So that pissed people off. And then you have this whole story essentially about Satan working, uh, Satan as a bureaucrat working for, for uh, w- with foreign powers and their local collaborators. And I, I don't think they. To, to the point that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, I think they especially didn't like the implication that the communist influence was a foreign was power. Was foreign, uh, yeah. And I not think homegrown. that's the key thing. And you could tell it's foreign because, again, Satan is vanquished at the end by a nun. Yep. How by... Polish a goddamn ending is that, <laughs> right? So Polish. Did this, so this movie never came out. Or no, what? and... I, well, I how do to, we watch it? Well, 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 I want to address this because what what print did you guys watch? So the first print that I saw was a crappy bootleg file, but I had the great honor of seeing it was it was like the weirdest kismet. The week that Zhuavsky died in 2015. They brought restorations of Third Part of the Night, The Devil, and Silver Globe to New York. And I got to see all of them with Ajay Yaroshevich, who is his lifelong friend and cameraman who shot this film, and Ajay Korzynski, who did all the music for his, or most of the music for Yo, his films. The music in this movie, real quick, I gotta say, holy shit. This is like, like, discordant. It does a lot of work. Fucking weirdo. It's like, well, if, but if Goblin like didn't have rhythm, but they fucking knew what they were doing, you know, it's crazy. And he sounding. looks like Santa Claus. <laughs> he looks like Polish Santa. Oh my he gosh! Does. Oh, that should be a name of a band. Polish, Polish Santa. Santa. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! I fucking. That fuck. is one of those bits, though, that demonstrates up until fairly recently, before this film was made how liberal the scene in Poland was. Because if you go and you look at Polish, like, jazz, and, you know, Polish prog rock, like Poland had its own prog scene in the late 60s and early 70s, they're doing all this far-out experimental shit that people in the West aren't doing. Yeah. So, well, even their art, like some of the greatest film posters come from Poland in the late 60s and 70s. So even after 68, there were certain things, like in the Soviet Union, if you were an architect, you had to design 
brutalism. The the people's building. But <laughs> for some freaking reason, my wife, a wonderful person, bought me a book for my birthday a couple years ago about this. Bus stops. Oh, oh my Bus gosh, I know all about them. In the They're former beautiful. Soviet space are crazy. It's insane. They look insane. And why? That's because awesome. the architects the, the or the bureaucrats that oversaw them were like Oh, it's a bus stop, so we don't give a shit. Have fun. Yeah, it, there's like mosaics. Poster like, art in so Poland, cool. my understanding is the same deal. Yeah. You could do socialist realism, but it's like, oh, you're selling a movie, so Well, and I, I think some of the mindset was you're selling foreign movies, so mm-hmm. this isn't really inherently Polish, so kind of go off. Yeah, there's, those posters are, are wild, and they're, like, gorgeous. And, and sometimes they don't really have much to do with the movie. No. You know? It's just, like, like but wild But also, shit. weirdly, a lot of them are designed by women, which is an exciting fun fact. That is something which I was not aware of. Yeah, one of the... Um, Oh my God, her name is escaping me. One of the foremost Polish poster artists was in a relationship with Polanski early on. She went on to become good friends with Zhuavski, did the third or one of the variations of the third part of the night and possession posters like that oh. wild possession poster is her. Yeah, one. Okay. Yo, is it the one with the fucking snake head and the lady back? Yo, that poster fucking rock. But All the her music, cool. it was sort of a similar thing. Yeah. Uh, particularly jazz, because the Soviet or the socialist authorities could like wrap their head around, okay, jazz is black music, therefore it is protest music. Jazz is acceptable. Yeah. And then you got these weird like jazz musicians who are doing really crazy far out there things under the sort of guidance of, oh, this is progressive, you know, music. And Korzynski definitely does that like he worked on some of Zhuavsky's early short films and the scores are amazing and I think another reason that they got so pissed off at him is because he came up under Andrzej Vida who is basically the Polish Spielberg who didn't Mm -hmm. really make any edgy films at all and so it's like he was assistant director on this guy's films. So I think the Polish censor office or film office were like, oh, it's just going to be Vida Jr. And he was like, is it though? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, before we move on to uh, Vilchka, She-Wolf, I have one kind of broad question I want to throw at you guys. And this is something that's kind of come up in past episodes and in happy hours we've done. And it's something that's been... Uh, kind of in the back of my mind a lot lately. I've been on this like, you know, kind of asshole tip recently about the art house and about experimental filmmaking. And sometimes it really, really frustrates me when it feels like a movie is intentionally obfuscating its point in order to be artistic. Like it has a point that it wants to make that is an important point. But it's dressing it up in in so many ways that it's not accessible to a mass of people, and I think that's why for the first half of this movie I wasn't I was like oh shit are you I have to figure Stop out having fits everyone everyone's having fits <laughs> constantly and also uh, every single character I realized that they weren't real characters well it's, it's allegorical yes they they were they were symbols for something else does this not bother you guys? Or, or rather, is this a, a, a filmmaking and artistic tendency that uh, 
I have the opposite problem where a lot of like, certainly there are some art house films that get on my nerves, but I find mainstream big budget films that are made solely to rake in an audience way more frustrating because like, you're not telling a story, you're not imparting any kind of message. There's not even a great sense of style. It's like, this is just the same bullshit story in a slightly different format. Yeah. So I much prefer art house films because it's, and I don't think there's always a clear central message, but here it's just this young person who is very angry. You mean Zhuavsky? Zhuavsky, yes. And so, like, the way that he's able, like I said earlier, I feel like this is a film that is deeply intellectual. There's, like you pointed out, there's philosophy in a lot of the dialogue. every bit of dialogue. And and poetry. He's incredibly well-read. He was a diplomat's son, so he spoke, like, six languages and has all these literary references packed in. But even if you don't know anything about the Polish partitions or anything about Poland in 1971, it's still this really visceral sensory experience. And I think that's art house at its best is when somebody makes you step outside of losing yourself in a, in a conventional story and you have this unforgettable experience that like maybe it annoys you or makes you physically uncomfortable. As soon as this movie ended... I wanted to watch it again. And mm. I can't tell you whether I actually liked the movie, but I know that I want to watch it again. And I have a feeling that I'll probably watch it again after that. That's how and, I felt the and first I don't time. think I'll even know after three watches whether I like it, but I know that I can't stop thinking about it and, and that see, I want to crack this. We were talking about this off air before yes. we recorded. And it's funny hearing the two of you, you know, talk about Art House. I'm smack in the middle. I thought you might I, be. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I, I see Charles and also get extremely agitated at times. Yeah. But I definitely agree with Sam in terms of give me a good Art House film as opposed to mass-produced junk uh, any day of the week. But a good Art House film does exactly what where it left you. The movie's over. You have questions. You feel confused and maybe yes. a little nauseated. But you want to go back. You yes. want a second helping. Absolutely. You wanna, there's something that you said to me earlier about how it makes you, and this, this thing that you said that I'm going to try to rephrase, I think applies to all of my favorite art house directors. It's like it leaves you with so many more questions than it answers. And in a way it's frustrating, but it's like the type of cinema where you find yourself randomly waking up at three in the morning thinking about things. And honestly, that's why I I know I've said these names like a few times and I hate to be a plebe, but it's, it's Lynch and Yadorowski. Like they're the guys who uh, like, like lost highway. I, I hate lost highway. I've seen it about 10 times. I'll watch it 10 more times. I hate that fucking movie. I keep watching it. I can't stop watching it. I want to know what it's about. I want to know who these people are and what, and who they aren't. And it's just like, it, it, it's, it's spinning my brain around, you it's, know, it's why for the last 20 years of my life, the film that keeps coming up at film nights that I do is El Topo. Yeah, yep. because I have I saw that movie when I was in high school, and I've I've read a lot of stuff since then. 
I've seen the movie countless numbers of times. I am still trying to piece together yeah. all of the symbolism. Those are the film. best movies. But the thing is, though, is is the ones that are the best are the ones that you trust that there's an answer that you can somehow figure out. Even if that answer doesn't make sense, it's like fucking particle physics. You know, when I'm reading particle physics bullshit, uh, like, you know, the elegant universe, whatever, talking about bosons and muons and gluons and how, you know, a particle, you can observe it only when it's moving, but it's in two different places at once. It doesn't make any fucking sense when you're talking about it, but when you're reading it, it's like, oh, I'm grabbing hold of this thing. But as soon as you grab hold of one thing, you lose the thread of the other three and you have to just get immersed in it and in order to get immersed in it you have to go a little crazy and you have to like lose a part of yourself and like that's what it's like decoding these movies you have to do actual especially Zhuavsky's movies yes so this is my first Zhuavsky film which okay that I've never I've to, ever seen to anyone to anyone listening do not start with the devil it is insane <laughs> it's whatever it's, I mean all his movies are frenetic and insane in varying degrees but to briefly answer a question that you asked a while ago, he gets put in timeout because of this movie. He doesn't get kicked out of Poland, but he leaves to go to France and make movies, which is where he made films and lived most of his life. But he comes back to Poland at the end of the 70s to make On the Silver Globe. I can't wait to watch Which that. has the most in common with the devil tonally even though it's bizarro science fiction adapted from a novel his yeah. great great uncle wrote all kinds of insanity and obviously possession like uh, i can't wait to knock that off my list i'm i'm very intimidated by it and i've been like nervous be. i can't i mean i can't wait but i'm like i'm a little nervous about watching that but one. yeah i think probably possess i would say that possession should probably be your first Zhuavsky film I think that's Ge the general kind of, I think that's the, the yeah that's sort of default one. It was mine. Yeah, it, and, it's yeah. most people's. Yeah, but I think also like just knowing about the man is that Possession is a movie that like you see it and you're like oh wow this guy makes some crazy fucking horror movies huh? And then he's and then, like think again, Buster. Yes, which <laughs> I love that shit. All right, you guys want to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can talk about She Will. A more overt full yeah, car yeah, movie. Yeah, we're gonna have a little fun in the second half. That is classic post-socialist, Wild West, Central Eastern European capitalist dick move to do. Yeah, it's yeah. a total To be like, oh, we can make money, we can make more money. That would be that would be my people under capitalism. Guys. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, like that's, when you get those those film distributor oligarchs, you know. I think it's funny you say that though. I think part of the cynicism that came with late socialism, it's capitalism everywhere, but the level of naked griminess yes. in Eastern Europe is it's unique. It, it is. is. Yeah. It, it has a special there are, there are naked yeah. and grimy people. It is it is unique. <laughs> All right, speaking of naked griminess, we're going to move on to fucking She-Wolf. This is a banger of a fucking movie. I mean... It really is. I watched this. This was on my... we Our last episode that we did... This is like our first real episode of the new year, but the last episode we did was like a listicle clickbait bullshit where we're saying, oh, it's our favorite new watches of last year. And v Vilchico was my number three favorite new watch to me last year. And I was so excited to revisit it for this episode. 
it is awesome. It's like a fucking Bava movie. It's like Bava doing Eastern European folk horror. It's... I was trying to describe this film to two older horror fans that I know. And I mentioned it was early 80s. So like immediately they were like, eh, and I'm like, no, no, no. This is, it's funny you bring up Bava. I was like, it's definitely Vertilock. This is, yeah, yeah, this is a 1960s Bava or mid 60s sort of hammer film yeah. through the lens of late socialist Poland. Have, have either of you seen, I don't know if it's, uh, I think it's on the full car box set. It's this might be Finnish Lip, or Lepterica. No, 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 no. It's, it's like the white reindeer, the white deer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Do you know yeah, what yeah. Finnish, Finnish football yeah, yeah. from the It's 50s. from 52, 53? Yeah. Yeah, it's about this, like, you know, loose lady whose fucking husband is this... Whoa, uh, whoa. she's not a loose lady. She's okay. a bored-as-hell okay. lady who I doesn't just want to sit around in a cabin while her husband is gone yes. for 11 months a year. Exactly. Her husband's going out hunting fucking reindeer. It's what they do in Finland. And in the Lapland, so transforming into a deer beats the shit out of just drinking yourself stupid. Yeah, instead of drinking, what you do is you go out fucking. And when your husband doesn't want to stay home anymore, you go visit the witch in the woods. And she gives you, you know, some crazy... The, the indigenous shaman in the woods. Yes. And <laughs> and then she can turn into this reindeer. It's... Aware reindeer. Aware reindeer. Whereas this is, you know, a werewolf, a she-wolf. It's like a story that is so classic that so many different cultures have their variation of mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it's it's very... It sort of fits into that same tradition that cat people belongs in. Oh, yeah. But this one... It just has I, the best mustaches. Oh my god! It also so so Kristoff Christ, Yashinsky plays the lead character Casper. Oh my god! I can and fucking look I, at him all day. I messaged Matt the other day because he posted a picture of him in an Instagram story, and I was like, I am obsessed with this man. <laughs> I, I I am blushing profoundly at the moment because I watched this film with my wife, and she also loved it. But there's there. I will quote her several times. Uh, Did she tonight. just want to grab onto those handlebar muscles? Well, that literally, she was like, <laughs> "You look like a character from this every, movie." Every she was like, "What I've learned from this movie is every man in Poland in the 19th century has your facial hair and quite possibly has your name because there's at least seven Mateuszes." Yeah, yeah, everyone's Mateusz and everyone's got a fucking mustache that can you know stop a bus. And it's and okay, I was saying this to Charles, but. We watch a lot of Chambara films, a lot of period set Japanese movies where if anyone has a period appropriate hairstyle or facial hair, it is always prosthetic. But Yashinsky has his hair and his mustache are real. And I think that might be why I'm obsessed with him. He's also giant. He's like bigger than the horse. Yeah, he is. It's a presence that like is so so powerful and the movie does this thing where he is in almost every scene in the film but he is not always central to every scene but you can always feel him you know what i mean like he like there's a while in the very beginning like you see his face but they never linger on it for very long 
And I'm just thinking, like, I need to see this guy again. And and Sam keeps saying, like, I think his mustache is real. And I'm like, of course it's fucking real. And then, like, 20 and minutes... And you were like, it's layered. Yeah, it's layered. <laughs> it's amazing. And then, and then you know, uh, half an hour later, you're like, I think that's his real hair. And I'm like, Sam, of course it's his real hair. Like, Polish power, yeah. Polish fucking power. And apparently I was reading... So he's not... It seems like he's not in a ton of films, but... No, a lot of Polish TV work. But, and also... Polish theater became a theater director and was an opera director, which amazing. Once I read that he was an opera director, he's like the stereotype of the like large imposing opera director yeah. who you just don't fuck with. No. There's a scene in this movie where uh, he's uh, I will get into the plot eventually. Maybe who knows? It's a werewolf. Movie. It's a werewolf flick. It's fucking awesome. But there's a scene where he is uh, he's like in a carriage and they're they're going on a little trip. And he's he's like kind of he's he's scoping out the road to make sure it's safe for the fucking aristocrat behind him to travel through. The aristocratic coward behind yeah, him, who fucking, we'll talk about in a yeah. second. Yes. <laughs> and then he like he gets like kind of shook and awake, and he gets out of the carriage and he grabs a handful of fucking snow and he just rubs it all over his face to wake up. And it's just it's like Polish yo, coffee. This guy is so fucking <laughs> cool. He is so cool. This film takes place during another 1860s? insurrection. Originally, it was going to take place during the 1860s. Oh, that's rebellion, right. And they had to which move Which was it. directed against the Russian Empire. Yes. The film was made just as martial law was ending in Poland. 81 to 83. So the censors are kind of on high alert. Maybe because The Devil was such an art house film and stylistically it didn't mesh with socialist realism. Yeah. They were like, hell with this. They see this come around and they're like, okay, it's a horror film that was directed by the same dude who did Test Pilot Prix from the mid-70s. This seems safe. A acceptable stuff. Yeah. I think he made some other period set films that were like safe. Yeah, so okay. they go through the script and the only thing they that really offends them is Russians. No, no, no. Yeah, can't these characters that. can't, can't be Can't do that. They are, they're part of our socialist family. And the director's like, okay. I'll just add a P to the beginning of well, the Well, it was, it was, it, he was <laughs> like, Everyone hates how the can Russians. I, how can I film this, but include, because the lithograph photos are important. And at first he was like, oh, I can't change this. Like, yeah, you can't key. set it back too much earlier because then they don't but exist. But he then remembered his Polish history and was like, oh, yeah, we got colonized by everybody. 1848 it is. So the action we believe takes place in the aftermath. So 1848, it's probably the winter of 1848, 1849, after, you know, the Austrians have reestablished control. After the German Revolution fails to pop off. Yes. Uh, that was sad. Yeah. I wasn't there. That was, it's that still was sad. Oh, man. A, a whole, moment of silence. On a, whole <laughs> on a whole host of levels. So this takes place in 1848, 1849, and the assumption is he has been fighting. Yeah, he's been away fighting. Yeah. He's not just away hunting reindeer. Yeah. But his wife, I, I assume he comes back and she has been engaged in some devilry and, of and some sort. Is, is dying is, because she was pregnant with another man's child. And in the ultimate Catholic sin, 
has performed an abortion on herself. I see. Okay, and that is that is what she is like suffering from when when you know Mustache Man rolls into That's town. That's why her innards, in the words of the doctor, have been well, they're messed up. So she has begun the devil worship. She as you do. Yeah. So all this is off screen, though. This yeah, is just kind of implied. She's forsaken him. She's forsaken the church. But remember, Poland, Catholicism. Basically paganism. The first thing. It's, it's, well, late, it's late stage paganism. It's late, <laughs> but it's not even acceptable late stage paganism because the first thing my wife noticed was, and this is where she was like, oh, she fucked up because she's been with me long enough that she knows, is when the crucifix is gone. Oh, because yeah. she's like... Fuck yeah. She's like... <laughs> she's turned to Satan. She's, you know... She's uh, sleeping with a wolf with paw a, in her bed. The, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Because she's got... She's taken down the cross, and her husband, who is clearly this Polish patriot, she's also forsaken Poland. Yo, this lady seems pretty fucking cool. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. She's she really cool. Is the... And honestly, the lady that plays her, like, this is the reason why oh, this if, movie if is, is so Bielska. terrifying. Is is oh. just she's amazing. Yeah, she has this look. I was trying to describe to Charles earlier without giving any real details that Zhuavsky has this way of casting really beautiful, talented actresses and then making them absolutely terrifying. And, and Ivo- Ivona Bielska does that so well. There's in this one film. scene in particular when they're at that little private zoo where she gives a little smile, yeah. which is horrifying. When she's yeah. she's feeding, feeding organs the, to, the, to wolves. the wolves. Oh my gosh! And, and it, this happens later when um, the mustache man is out hunting fucking wolves. Casper, he's, tomato, tomato. Casper the friendly mustache. He's he's out hunting wolves. And he fucking, he fires his gun and he bags one. And it immediately cuts to this lady oh wrapping God, up, it's the scariest wrapping up her expression. hand and she is just smiling. This movie is terrifying. She is, she is what makes it so scary. But also, it's not just her. It's this weird vibe that comes out every so often. Like every once in a while, like there's that doctor priest character who shows up. Well, and he has, hang on, he, he, he has oh, this he... one bit when he's like, because uh, uh, our, our main guy, Mustache Man Casper, is, is sick for a bit. And the guy says, it's the damp. He has marsh fever. Which, which is malaria. It just, for some reason, that line like scared the shit out of me. Like, it's the damp. It's marsh fever. Could you tell that he's coded Jewish? Oh, yes. There's two Jewish characters in the film. Yeah. And the film does some very interesting, it makes some very interesting comments upon the place of Jews in the Polish imagination. Yeah. Uh, the doctor, I think it's, it's not even coded. I think his last the, name the is Goldberg. Alchemist. It is. <laughs> but he is clearly a Polonized Jew, which uh, makes him okay. Yes, one of the good ones, as they say. Ah, that's the other character. So there's a Jewish innkeeper, which would make mad sense in a place like oh, Poland. Oh, who gets hanged. Yes, which in a place like Poland would make a lot of sense because much like sort of Western Europe under feudalism, Jews were the middlemen of that system. Yeah. So too, that just moved to Central and Eastern Europe. So you have this Jewish innkeeper who is working with these Polish patriots and he gets strung up by the Austrians. And there's this sort of throwaway line. He was a decent Jew. Yes. And that I think is very important because 
there's this notion, and this is very atypical, or very typical, I should say, of the Polish national movement in the 19th century. Jews were okay if you were a decent kind of Jew. If you were assimilated enough. You were assimilated or you were clearly pro-Polish. Yeah, and honestly, but that is... Uh... You know, I think that's a factor in a lot of types of bigotry and racism is that like, oh, I am not a racist. I am not a bigot. Why do these people have to be so well, different? And, yeah. but, and particularly in regards to a country like Poland, where you have a giant Jewish minority and you are reconstructing your own nation. You have these people who also have no nation of themselves and so what you see, particularly in Polish, but you also see this in Hungarian, Romanian, Ukrainian anti-Semitism, is the notion of the Jew as the perpetual foreigner yes. and the perpetual yes. friend of your oppressors. So the decent Jews, they, they fight for Poland. The not-so-decent Jews, they're with the Austrians, they're with the Russians, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a really, there's a very interesting comment and thinking about 1968-1970 because even though the anti-Semitism gets drubbed down as 70s move on, it's not like the state really changes its policy no, towards Polish it's... Jews. And I'm wondering if that's a little like an aside or sort of comment on that because that's kind of atypical with the way the regime felt about Jews. If you were, if you were as assimilated as possible... We can tolerate you. Yes. If you... But you're still not really viewed as Polish, because I think to the point that you made not too long ago, to truly be Polish, you have to be Catholic. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, you're, you're only just going to be a decent Jew, Sam. So. Which also, random aside, there's still a lot of insanity around that, as you know. I mean, Poland has gotten super conservative. I, I was resisting this term for a long time until fairly recently. Let's call a spade a spade poland is currently being run by a party which is well they're clerical fascists yes, that's, yes. i think that's the way that i would frame it i on my on my old blog i wrote about uh some of fassbender's films which address the holocaust and world war ii and i made reference to the fact that there's a character in one of his films who talks about how he was in a concentration camp as a child. And in my review, I was writing about how the, the Nazi camp was located in Poland. And I, with my tiny blog that no one read, started getting <laughs> these emails from the Polish Cultural Association who were like, there were not concentration camps in Poland. We did not kill any Jews. I was like, first of all, they were literally in Poland. All of the camps were in Poland. Yeah, it's like, uh, what? <laughs> I, okay, so this is the reason, literally, why I, I was always doing cultural history, but I've really shifted to doing the cultural stuff because I got tired of going, giving talks, presenting papers at various places. And it's this little army, I call them the old Polish grandmas, of these old Polish women who, if you say anything remotely controversial about any topic in modern Polish history, 
they will come at will you. Will they throw pierogies at you? They will, they will just come <laughs> at you and call you all kinds of things like a self-hating pole. And I'm like, no, no, fuck you. I don't, you don't yeah. get to say that about and, me. And this, I think and you were alluding to this earlier that right now is a time where to be critical of the, the regime in Poland is so important. Yeah, who I, are a bunch of Holocaust deniers. Yeah, yeah and, and they've had, I am not an expert at all in this, but there was this event that happened with the uh, a lot of Polish leadership where there was a plane crash. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and this was sort of a like modern cultural tragedy that led to a mass of people rallying around this this current uh, the current leader in Poland I don't I don't know his name but he's, he's one of a set of twins yes yes uh, the Kaczynski brothers the Kaczynskis. and and they are just cutting so much of Polish history out of like museums and it's so much horrible. stuff it is yeah. it, it's shocking and I mean it, I mean like obviously like we live in a world where like you know shit seems to be just like not so good in a lot of places that it's so easy to overlook these things that are small, but really they are all I mean, erasing cultural history is not small. No, it, no, it's not, a, not, not at all. I, what but I, I mean feel like is that's that what they're trying to precisely. And that it's just, it's so interrelated to so many things that are going on right now. What we really need is a satanic, she will that's exactly what i was going feed to feed them say. all to the wolves that's exactly what i was going to say bring the wolves back to poland that's going to be my platform that i run on <laughs> put that on the t-shirt before we close out the episode wait we we, we didn't one... talk about the fact that this movie is all about resistors we've been talking about resistance all day but casper is essentially working for this noble who is supposed to be organizing this resistance, but he's clearly just a fucking coward. Yeah, and I think that's one of the other reasons why this film got relatively minor cuts from the censors, because the character of the noble... There are obvious Polish nationalist tropes, and we'll, yeah. we'll talk about the end of the film, which... Was that screen cap I posted? It's yeah, it's awesome. Madness, madness. But the depiction of the uh, upper classes as useless, as weak Just and useless, useless and indulged. Yeah, I think I think did the film some some good because at least they could be like, oh well, you know, their depiction of the it's Polish not positive. upper class is extremely regime positive. Yeah, and the fucking coward, he runs away to Hungary, I think. Yep. And, and leaving the real patriotism, the real defense of the country to a common boy from the sticks, our friend Casper. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to yeah. play the ideology game, the real Polish patriots are the workers and the peasants. With the giant mustaches. Yes. Yeah. Who are willing to dive out of a second floor window. Yo. <laughs> okay, can we talk about the end of the film real quick? Oh my God, Of yes. course. So, like I said, my wife made, she loved it. The end of the movie, she turns to me and she says, Well, okay, he's just Polish Rambo now. That's yeah. a that's a series yeah. that we yeah. deserve. The end of the film, he kills a werewolf. Most of the Austrian hussars on yeah. this estate. 
we're not certain whether he survives, but man, he flees. Oh, he for sure survives. Absolutely. That he's guy is so yeah, he's absolutely. The man's a bullet sponge, no problem. And like one of the things just before that ending goes down, there's this incredible scene that like I wanted to rewind and watch it again. It's when they're casting a silver bullet. Oh, and the entire so scene is it it's just it's gorgeous. Like you're watching them actually cast a silver bullet using materials that were probably only available in like 1848 and it's just it's gorgeous. And this movie has such a meticulous eye for those kinds of like costumes and detail and everything. It's just it's amazing. It feels all in it's not as crazy or chaotic, but in some ways it feels almost as sensory as the devil. Like the textures are so real. Yes. Two things sort of about what you just said. Uh, this is the advantage of filming in countries that have gone over, you know, social revolutions. Those palaces were actual palaces. Are real. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, it looks like it. It looks like their, it. Their old owners were asked to leave. So you could film there. They went on vacation to Hungary. Yeah, yeah. They, they bounced to Hungary. Uh, right? Uh, that's cool. <laughs> I fuck with that. So the, there's that. The other thing, too, is it's kind of crazy because the film itself was made during martial law. It came out afterwards. They had to get special permission from the state to have any of those firearms or yeah, those flint knock pistols they have. Yeah, those are the, so the the militia, the police were so concerned about anything. They were like, "You need to fill out these special forms just Which to to have so these, antique these antique pistols that like pistols literally just in case." Yeah, in that in that interview with the director that's in the full car box set. He had this throwaway line and I looked at Charles and was like, what? Where he explains that like you had to get permission because in his words, because those pistols were really popular at the time. And I was like, who the fuck is using pistols from the 1840s? Honestly, if you can, if you can get them, <laughs> you got them. He and also says them. something really interesting afterwards, which seems like a throwaway thing. But then I started thinking, I'm like, oh, of course. They also had to get special permission for gasoline. Now, initially I was like, okay, rationing. But then I'm like, no, petrol bombs. Yep. Oh, I didn't even think of petrol that. bombs. They don't want gasoline in the hands. It's amazing. Of, yeah, those little petrol bombs, Molotov cocktails, yeah. whatever you want to call them, that's they never go out of style. Exactly they never go what, out of style. What, they're what very easy. Very easy to make. You know, they're, they're you can store them for a while too. Well, All you have to do is watch Ukrainian news, and they'll show you how to make them. Oh yeah, it's so funny. Okay. I uh, I never shared information online about how to make a Molotov cocktail before, but if I did, it was immediately flagged and taken off after the Ukrainian conflict fucking started popping off. They did not flag that information anymore. That information was now like... Well, because it's on news channels. No, but, but like they like you can't eventually... get rid of it. Because when it was in the context of like the George Floyd uprising, that was shut down immediately. But the moment it was in context of that conflict, it was like, oh, no, go ahead. Show the people how to do this as a public service. It's really weird because obviously we know who is most to blame here in regards to Ukraine. But it is strange that uh, and that doesn't shock me at all because the Ukrainian petrol bomb tossers 
although there are plenty of anarchists and socialists in Ukraine tossing them at Russian tanks, too. They're called Arsenal Kiev fans. And if you're interested in that, listen to the other podcast I do about football. Uh, (laughs) But... These Molotov cocktail chuckers are our Molotov cocktail chuckers now, so yeah. you can you can get the recipe. It's it's, <laughs> it's wild how so much of it is okay now because we get to sort of resurrect our old Cold War enemy, and it's just it's like the script's already written. <laughs> I, I know we're sort of venturing off the topic, but in this larger context of Central Eastern Europe, I guess not. Speaking as someone who is, and I'm both Ukrainian and Polish, which. If you know anything about the 20th century and Poland and Ukraine, they're real smushed together. <laughs> oh, yeah, and in the worst and most violent ways. Our history is intimately linked for good and bad. It is really, it's heartbreaking, but it's heartbreaking in the worst context because even though the nonsense flowing from Vladimir Putin about Nazis in Ukraine was largely ridiculous because it's like if you want to fight nazis arrest your own go, uh, arrest yeah. your own yeah, and sure. also go arrest the polish government yeah oh yeah <laughs> like but my fear it, what is troubling is there are there, there are, are fascists yes, in ukraine there absolutely are fascists and they gangs. are unfortunately now becoming normalized because if you say oh but there are fascists there it's like you are a putin sympathizer precisely yeah and it's like But I'm not. That sort of rejection of nuance, I think, also applies to things like the Palestinian situation. Absolutely. Where you're immediately anti-Semitic if you are anti-Zionist. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and that comes in any kind of like war setting at all is that like there is a line and you need to be on one side or the other. And obviously you can be on one side of the line and have nuance but that's not really allowed if you want to well no i mean it's the same thing with ireland it's you uh, do you support terrorism Mm -hmm. Uh, it's like well yeah 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 (laughs) i gotta fucking do all right i got a feeling that we're gonna carry this over in our in our happy hour uh because i mean it's a a big topic and i kind of want to keep chatting about it but let's uh let let's kind of wrap up here. Do you guys have any uh final thoughts or uh maybe recommendations for Polish cinema or I just want to thank you guys for having me on. This was a treat. Uh and in terms of if 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 you if the audience if any of you guys are, you know, playing from home as I like to call it and you've watched these films, there are some excellent genre films from Poland, from the socialist era. And if you have the Fokara box set, I think, you know, the She-Wolf has a nice little companion piece, Lokis, which yes. is a effectively a werebear film. Well, I haven't seen this. We have to Russian watch it. It's Lithuania. great. It is an absolutely fantastic It's, it's great, and I feel like Lokis is one of those ones that not a lot of people have heard of, but it's an important companion piece to Valerian Borovchik's La Bette or The Beast. They're they're based on similar source material. There's way less fucking in Locust, though. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's Polish, so you can't have the... Yeah, he had to make yeah. that in France. <laughs> yes, he had to make that in France. But that is absolutely the, correct. And there is a Soviet silent version called The Marriage of the Bear, yeah, I've seen a crap print of it, but I've, I've it only does seen exist. stills from it. I think if you search on YouTube "Marriage of the Bear" USSR or something, it will come up. Sick. I don't think there are English 
subs, but if you pull silent, yeah. Yeah, if, if you pull Ruski or yeah, you could figure it out. Do you have any um any any shout outs or any projects you're working on or there's some stuff I can't talk about unfortunately, but <laughs> I will say this. I recently was privileged and honored to be part of Radiance Films recent release of Ilio Petri's The Working Class Goes to Heaven. So pick uh, up that disc. Uh it's it it's a wonderful I can't wait to copy. see that. Movie. And if you want to hear my ass jibber jabber about, you know, the Italian Communist Party and Italian politics in the post war era, please do so. I can listen to your ass jibber jabber all day. I, I really can. And uh, for those of you who are interested in the footy, I'm usually on... You mean soccer? Soccer, yeah. There you the go. Too Many Guys Soccer podcast. I'm the Liverpool slash Central and Eastern Europe correspondent, so... And my shout out is sort of an extension of yours. I reviewed Working Class Goes to Heaven for Cineast. So that will be out in the spring issue. And I talk about how wonderful you are. And I'm also so grateful that you are willing to join us because as I'm sure anyone who's made it to the end of the episode has figured out, it's such a highly specialized subject that it would be hard for me to imagine having anyone else on and having the same sort of quality and depth of discussion. So thank you. Well, you're very much welcome. Yeah, you're all right, man. (laughs) (laughs) I want to plug a thing that me and Sam worked on or Sam worked on it. I kind of edited some shit. Uh, There is a vinegar syndrome box set that is not sold out yet. And it's not going to be in stores. It's just like on their website. Uh, It is. Uh, hang on a second. Made in Hong it? Kong. There it is. Yeah, it's called Made in <laughs> Hong Kong. Let me help Kong. you there. I don't fucking know what it is. Uh, <laughs> Made in Hong Kong. It's a collection of movies all starring Anthony Wong, and we did a video essay all about Anthony Wong, who we fucking love. And He's I'm the king. I'm so hyped to get that get that in because I actually I've never seen any of the movies on there. They're all originally what they wanted to do was they wanted it to be a category three box set. But then they found out that one of the movies was Cat 2B. I think two of them might be. Whatever. There, it's it's a really blurry line. It is. And it's sometimes difficult unless you read Cantonese to yeah. find and, and this honestly, information online. I feel like for all of last year and even the year before that, we've been like going off about Category 3. Cat 3 movies. Cat 3 this, Cat 3 that. Fuck Cat 3. Cat 2B is the rating <laughs> designation. What, what did I say that this year was? 2023 2B? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but wait. Yeah. One one shout out I forgot. I If you are not already a Patreon subscriber, I think this is the first time I've ever plugged my own Patreon on this show. Usually Charles does it. It's my job. I just started doing a series of audio essays that I will continue throughout the year covering the work of Jean-Luc Godard, R.I.P., so there will be more discussions of, you know, angry young men and political protests and 1968. Are, are you covering, uh, I'm going to sound like an absolute goddamn weirdo. I'm assuming you're covering my favorite Godard film, The Chinese. Of course. Hell yes. I'm going in chronological order, but it's not just going to be like one episode per film. Okay. It will probably be a couple per episode because he made a million of them. 
got to get through them all somehow. Yeah, yeah part <laughs> one was great. I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the rest of that series. Good luck with that. Thank you. It's an undertaking. <laughs> Yo, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a real treat. Well, thank you for having me, guys. Hell yeah. All right. See you later, everybody. Good night.